Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Pre-Order Bonus Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Cameron Warren, and I'm joined, as always, by Jacob Price and a very special guest, Dave Jackson from Tales from the Backlog. Dave, thanks so much for joining us. Welcome into the show. Of course. Yeah. Happy to uh, join you guys. I, I appreciated you coming on Tales from the Backlog to talk about the uh, the favorite game of your Discord server members. So yeah, happy to return the favor. Great to talk with you as always. And of course, the game that Dave is referring to is the one and only Breath of the Wild, which infamously, <laughs> we don't actually have our own episode on. So we yeah. went on Dave's show and we did it there. Yeah, we that's right. We've been banned from our own Discord community because <laughs> <laughs> from from doing an episode on that show. So much so when we did when we created some emotes, we put a, a you know the red circle with a slash through it, a BOTW. So pretty much anytime <laughs> Zelda news is posted in our Discord, um, you usually get a few of those you know tagged on to whatever comment it is. Well, Dave. I want to get your thoughts just right off the bat. You know, you listen to our to our show, so you know we kind of like to riff at the beginning and just talk about news and stuff. So we didn't talk about this on our last episode that we recorded, but Epic Games, <laughs> creator of the Megaton, the the app, the beast, like the gaming beast, Fortnite, fired a thousand people yeah. last week. <laughs> and we are surround i mean we are seemingly sur- we have so many games to play right now so many nine out of ten video games that have dropped in the last like just this year has just probably arguably the best year of video games like in a long long time maybe ever and yet you're seeing these massive companies just firing people left and right i mean epic makes fortnite for goodness sake <coughs> give me your thoughts on that yeah like it's interesting. So first of all, I'll say right off the bat, I'm not a business person. So um, just kind of my my general thoughts are like, I, I feel like Epic, they they say all the time that they're losing money from their store because they keep giving games away for free every week. Right. Mm-hmm. And there are just like, just anecdotally, <laughs> how many people do you know that buys games from Epic's store? Like, not that many, right? No. I mean... I own a few titles from Epic Store, but if I can buy it on Steam, I'll buy it on Steam. I'll only buy it on yeah. Epic if it's some kind of exclusive, right? Yep. I yeah, only exactly. have some kind of exclusive. I think I'm, I have my library open right now. I have four games in here. Yeah. So I have um, I, I have like 80 games in my Epic library. I haven't bought a single game because I just I claim the stuff they give away every <laughs> week and I don't buy anything there. It's so like they're losing money on that. And I think they've said that. And then on the other hand, they're they're you you would think they're printing money with Fortnite, but i like at what point are they just gonna like i mean not saying give up on the storefront but like stop paying so much money to give games away for free maybe you won't have to fire a bunch of your workers like this is <sighs> not working for you yeah but i i guess like the the exclusives i guess are, are working a little bit i remember um Oh, I can't remember off the top of my head, but like some high profile stuff has launched as Epic exclusive and yeah. people are like begrudgingly like, okay, I'll, I'll throw them a few bucks, I guess. So right. I can play this new game. But like, I, I think the store and the free games and stuff, like when I hear that they're firing people, it's not because I'm like, Oh, Fortnite's losing money. I'm thinking, okay, what other part of their business is, is messing right. up? Yeah. I mean, that's, 
that's totally what it is. And they, you saw that they, I mean, they fired a thousand people. Jake can, can comment on, um, they shuttered, uh, Jake, you were saying what's, what's the company they bought? Yeah, so they they have uh, Bandcamp, sort of. Right, that's right. And I actually use Bandcamp quite a lot. Um, I I love looking for things on Bandcamp. A lot of like indie game soundtracks will be on Bandcamp for sale. That's like where I'm going to go to buy that kind of stuff. And I just there's a lot of weird random indie musicians who are producing albums and putting them on there. And I'm ticked, man. I'm really ticked that they lost 50 percent of their staff due to the epic layoffs. Um, mm-hmm. because Bandcamp's amazing. I think it's like one of the, they never say to like really root for a company, but if I had to pick one, it probably would have been Bandcamp. They do, you know, free or the music on Fridays where they don't take a cut if you purchase things from musicians on Fridays and they have all these super cool things going on. And so I'm super annoyed. I'm like, holy cow, Epic, as you've been expanding and as you have been, you know, becoming this giant behemoth, you're starting to impact like other aspects other interests that I have, right? Like beyond gaming. And so I'm, I'm very annoyed. Very, very annoyed. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I mainly bring this up because like this year has been so incredible for games. And so it's wild because you would think that there would be this correlation with, oh man, like there's more people playing games than ever. There's more incredible games on the market than ever. There's all these games that are so critically received. And yet you look around just quickly. I'm just like looking really quick. 6,000 layoffs this year so far like across the industry yeah uh everybody from paradox who makes like all the strategy games you talked yep. about Bandcamp, jake uh um telltale who they who, who already shut down and then they booted back up to make um i can't remember that what's what's the oh my gosh the expanse they made the expanse right, like yeah. telltale game they're laying that whole team off again. So that, that company is getting all laid off again. Um, and then all the embracer group stuff and Twitch and like, so anyway, it's just wild to me. And then Epic obviously being the big one with a thousand jobs at like the beasts, you know, it's like the biggest game ever in Fortnite. So it's just wild. It's this, this industry is like so volatile. So, I mean, it's, it's amazing that like we're still getting amazing games. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you, at a certain point you're like man this this industry just seems like too volatile and and too crazy to for these companies like to continue to to withstand and like continue to put out cool stuff but anyway somehow it keeps going because i mean we're absolutely swimming in games but it does suck to see people losing their jobs over it yeah 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 i think uh, i think we're really gonna yeah, see Jake. the impact this 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 brings me to uh a thread on Twitter that I think uh, Rami Ismail was saying that um, this really sucks. Actually, I think it was Co Carnage who was asking him, "Do you still consider this a great year in games, despite all these, uh, you know, game devs being laid off?" And Rami's response was something along the lines of, um, "No, because what this means is all all the stuff that we're seeing here was like the product of three to five years worth of game industry, you know, development." And products being made. And so what this means is that this is this could be really poor foreshadowing for the next three to five years of gaming, mm. which is really sucky to think about, right? Go indies. They'll survive. Yeah. It's, it, it's tough because, like, um, there's there's been a couple indie studios recently that have just been like, you know, we made a game that was, like, moderately successful. I'm thinking of the studio that made Boomerang X, 
that oh, just recently right. announced that they're they're shutting down because they don't have any money and they can't find anyone to fund their new oh, game. Shoot, and so they're really? just like, that was, yeah. yeah. So they're just like, okay, well, I, I guess we're closing down the company. Like maybe we'll make games oh. some other way. Uh, but, you know, indies aren't exempt from this either. It's just, yeah. it's just tough. And video games are so resource and money intensive to make that like, you talk about like paradox and like naughty dog laid people off. Like anyone yeah. who's not having a smashing success in video games is at is in danger of losing uh, their jobs basically. Yeah. I mean, that is true. Our most recent game maker series interview was with, uh, with Aaron from flip flying. He, they recently just put out whisker squadron survivor and early access and, it's it is wild to me that in this type of industry you really are just kind of coasting from game to game. You want your game to be successful enough to fund your next game, and at some yeah. point, if you hit the wall or you hit a snag, um, you've got to ha- you've got to really hope that something's going to come through to help you get over the hurdle and continue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the future of video games is just, it's going to be one game for everyone. It's going to be called Fortnite Warzone Roblox, <laughs> and you're just going to have an AI, you're going to take your av- your AI avatar in VR, and you're gonna just going to make NFTs and just go <laughs> into a shared universe. That's the, <laughs> that's the dream, man. That's the game I desperately uh, want to play. Peter Molyneux's <laughs> ears just perked up somewhere here <laughs> Isn't Peter Molyneux working on an NFT game? I'm he pretty is. sure I heard that. Yes. I, yeah. There was he was yeah. just in the news for something about that game. They're making some announcement soon, or if they did make an announcement, I don't remember it. But <laughs> <laughs> Man, NFT you know, that feels like a good investment at this point. You know what I'm saying? Like we really I think we're just it's just in a down spot right now. We really <laughs> gotta get on that, Jake. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm gonna buy some Nintendo stock instead. I think that'll <laughs> Uh, you know, actually, I think it's it's funny. It's uh, you see this kind of happening with streaming, where Disney Plus just talked about how like they just canceled, that didn't cancel, but they just rebooted their entire new Daredevil show that they were working on, right? Yeah. And so they went back and they're like, you know, we they canceled the whole writers' room, and they're like, you know what, we're going back to like serialized TV. We're doing like pilots that are going to be. You know, we're going back to the old school classic model because that was the model that worked. Like that was the model that was profitable. Yeah. I suspect that despite the future that I think many executives want, they're going to find themselves in the position of like, you know what? These like tried and true models are actually the, the ones that are actually profitable. <laughs> they're like, tried that and work. true. <laughs> yeah. So anyway. Oh, well, before we dive into our game of the show, um, Let's go around the room real quick. What has everyone been playing? Dave, we'll start with you. What have you been playing? Okay. Uh, I just, let's see. I just wrapped up a couple things uh, for my own podcast. And then I'm just, I've just been continuously playing Baldur's Gate. Like when I have time in between some other games, this is, it's been like, um, it's been a game that I'm not putting pressure on myself to beat by a certain date for my podcast it's just like i'm gonna play it i'm gonna beat it and then after i beat it i'll do the podcast if it happens in two months that's cool if it Mm -hmm. happens in 10 months that's also cool (laughs) because it is a long game and it's not the kind of game that i want to rush Uh, everything you guys talked about it on your show like everything is so detailed and so dense with like memorable and creative stuff that i want to luxuriate in everything that's there yeah Uh, so 
I just, I just played a little bit tonight. I, I found a circus and I guess I won't spoil it, but like I found a circus. I went to the circus and a bunch of stuff popped off and it was awesome. (laughs) And that was just like my hour of Baldur's Gate three before we started recording tonight. Um, so I've been playing that. It's, it's incredible. It is, uh, one of the best games I've ever played. I don't really care what happens in the rest of the game from here. It's already one of the best games I've Mm. ever played. Um, and I'm about 60 hours into it. And, uh, I recently wrapped up a couple of older games. Um, I just finished playing the Lord of the Rings Return of the King game from yeah. the PS2. Yeah. No way. Are you that. serious? Yeah. Oh my goodness. That game is a that game is dope. <laughs> it 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 was. I played it when I was a kid. I remember playing it a ton. It was dope then and it still is. Really cool. Does that like, hold up? Yeah, I think it does. Um cinematically i think it really holds up they do these really awesome like transitions because they'll show clips from the movies and then transition into the ps2 graphics and then you're right in the gameplay and um it i mean they they picked all the big moments from the movie and let you play through them and uh once you beat the game you can play any level as any character which is funny you know like Mm -hmm. you want to go fight Gollum inside mount doom as Gimli. go ahead that's that's cool (laughs) have fun wait a second are you playing this like on a like on a PS2, how are you playing this? Oh, I'm uh, playing emulated on Steam Deck. Oh, man. Oh, my gosh, Jake. I knew I needed a Steam Deck for some reason. Oh, it's it's so good for this, uh, yeah. especially like that era, like PS2, GameCube type stuff. Because, oh, um, yeah, like, I, I don't know, something about like the old PS2 resolution fits real well on the Steam Deck screen. Hmm. It's great. Um, okay, really quick side note before Jake talks about his games. Speaking yeah. of like classic emulation, have you heard of the analog pocket? Yeah. Yeah. The, so did you see that they're doing a Nintendo 64 one? I, I did, yeah. I did. Dude, 4K N64, <laughs> like if you can play with the original cartridges, that's wild to me. 4K, that is wild. Dude. 4K with, it, with, <laughs> with that is going to be a lot of fun. I was just going to say like, 4k do i want do i really want to play donkey kong 64 in 4k <laughs> I, guess, I guess we'll find out i'm a, it makes me wonder if like can i go to my parents seventh storage unit somewhere in washington state and find <laughs> my n64 cartridges mm-hmm. worth it because that actually has me tempted worth it anyway jake that's awesome dave i mean i can't say enough good things about Baldur's gate 3 so i won't start but yep. jake what have you been playing? Um, so I just wrapped up Chance of Senar. Um, I don't know if either of you have been oh. looking at this game, um, but it is it is very cool. It is a slow start for sure. Um, it is uh, like a code breaker game. So you're kind of uh, you're figuring out what these different glyphs represent, and then you're piecing that together to understand different languages as you're sort of traversing through this world and. I think it does a really fantastic job of sort of pacing you through world building and sort of getting you under, like, making you understand who and why you're interacting with these people. So it's got really cool, like, linguistic-based puzzles that you need to solve. And it's a good one, so I just wrapped that up. I was playing that with my wife, actually. She got really into it, and she definitely has, like, you know, New York Times crossword type of brain. So I needed her for it, for sure. (laughs) Um, so somebody who doesn't consider themselves a gamer really loved that game. If you're listening and you know somebody like that, um, Chance of Sinar was was fantastic. I'm slowly picking my way through Solar Ash because it just came to Game Pass not too long ago. Um, 
honestly, I the first like 15 minutes of that game, I was like, I don't get the appeal. Because I think I wanted too much Hyperlight Drifter, despite seeing and knowing a lot mm-hmm. about Solar Ash. But I'm about halfway through it now, and I get it. I like it's clicked for me. I'm into it. Um, and I saw it recently described. It's cosmic skating, and I was like, yeah, that's the foundation of this game, <laughs> cosmic Sick. skating. And and it's it's really fantastic. I've I've really really been enjoying that one. And then finally, Cameron is going to be stoked to hear me talk about this game because he's been trying to get me to play this game for years. And this is Resident Evil 2 Finally. Remake. Good grief. Mm. I've been playing this because our uh, Halloween episode, Cameron and I will be talking about Resi 2 Remake. And um, it's gross. Dude, I don't play horror games because they're <laughs> gross. And, <laughs> dude, this game is, like, filthy. This game is so, so gross. Like, you know, just skulls cracking open and exposed brains. But at the same time, I'm, like, really impressed with how graphic they were able to make a lot of this gore. <laughs> um, so I don't like that at all. But gosh, dang it. This game is good. And I want to p- keep playing it. Like, um, so good. I'm nearing the end of the parking garage sequence. Um, and I, I don't know. It's have, People I'm sure have been calling Resident Evil games like Metroidvanias. But like this feels like a 3D Metroidvania that's feels really cool and i really like it and the story is super bonkers which i really am enjoying so yeah i'm i've really been really been enjoying that one and now it's making me really tempted to actually look into uh resident evil 4 remake because um it's good everybody's been loving that one yeah dude re4 remake is incredible um i'm a i'm a new convert to resident evil as of like last year so okay i've only played re4 and then the the first remake back from the gamecube um, which is also great great game um and re2 is probably up next as i'll probably just go in order um i might skip a couple along the way seven looks really scary and i don't think i'm up for that no way but um i'll probably play a bunch of them it's you're right this the stories are goofy they're super fun like that's the one thing i didn't know that i wish i knew before Mm. i started playing them is that like they do not take themselves seriously with the stories no it that to me has been so much fun and i think it's hard in a lot of like horror movies and i don't really touch horror movies or horror games but the ones that i have um it's really hard to do pacing especially if you're gonna have any sort of comedy in there and i just feel like resident evil 2 is just like Claire and Leon, every time they just like a cutscene and they're chatting, it's like, oh yeah, no biggie, nine zombies <laughs> on my butt. But you know, how's it going, man? You you doing all right? Everything okay? And I'm like, you're in the middle of a zombie apocalypse and in a police station, but who cares? Yeah, I've, that's funny you say that, Dave, because I'm the same way with Resident Evil. I played, uh, I played Village, and mm. Village was like just kind of like a circus it was like a circus was like <laughs> yeah. playing it was like so much weird stuff to look at. it was just like enthralling because of how weird it was then i was like oh, i kind of dig this then i played re2 and i was like oh man this is like really good and then re4's remake is like it's incredible so mm-hmm. um yes timely jake halloween i need to find myself a better a good halloween i guess alan wake 2 that's gonna be my halloween game i think mm. so well as for me um I've just been catching up on backlog stuff, kind of finished up a lot of 
of the current games that I've been playing. And then I, I finally circled back around to Marvel Midnight Suns. Oh, which sick. Really liked, uh, you know, had probably 45 hours in, but then just, you know, something came out and I, I just went, finally went back to it. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that game is really good. It has like a lot of t- great content in it. Combat, card combat, super fun, great animations. That game is still really good, and I think it's super cheap now. So if you haven't picked that one up yet, that's a great one to put in your never-ending backlog. So mm-hmm. is that the one that just hit Game Pass, or is it a different comic book game? That was Gotham Knights. That was Gotham Knights. Gotham Knights. That's right. Yes, very different. <laughs> yeah. I, I played the two-hour um, trial of Marvel's Midnight Suns, and if I cared more about Marvel, I think I would have been totally in love with it. But I was actually surprised as somebody who's not a big superhero fan. The the combat in that is really good. It is really solid. It's fun. Plus, you can be Blade, and there's nothing better. Dude, than I played that trial, and I desperately want a Blade video game. Like a brand <laughs> new one. Like, please. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, with that, let's dive right in. This episode of The Period of Bonus, we're talking about a game... Sea of Stars, and we've brought Dave on to do it. We've been talking about this, looking forward to this one for so long. It's been out now for, what, a couple months now, almost? Um, And so we brought Dave on to to talk about this one. Jake, how are we going to break this one down? We will be talking about Sea of Stars in our famous four categories. If you are a first-time listener to the show, um, we like to chat in the beginning, but we get down to business and we talk about games... um, per episode in these four different ways first we talk about the narrative here we're focusing on the story different themes that are sort of brought up um we want to talk about characters and we we want to sort of dig into what is interesting with this type of game especially a game like sea of stars that is very much harkening back to classic jrpgs um also just a, a brief warning we don't really do spoilers on this show but um, I've talked to Dave and Cameron about this, and about like the first fourth of the game is up for fair grabs. So it's up for grabs. So there, there might be some stuff you've been warned. Uh, the second category is mechanics. This is the nitty gritty, how you're interacting with the game, uh, the different systems that are in place. I mean, this is an RPG, <coughs> so you can expect a lot of RPG mechanics, and we'll be discussing those. Third, we've got our gameplay loop, and so. This is essentially what is enticing you to come back in the game. What are the sort of obvious patterns of play um, as you will be interacting with Sea of Stars and the story and how things change and how things don't change actually will be something we'll be, I, I know I will be bringing up as well. And then finally, <coughs> impact on the industry. Um, here we tend to speculate a little more. We tend to talk about the game as where we where it sits just as a game that released in 2023 and who we think is taking notes and what notes that we think that they're taking and how we think people will be talking about sea of stars in the future. So that's how we'll do it. We'll begin with the narrative and boy, does this game take too long to start narratively? (laughs) Agreed. Yeah. I mean, if we're talking about the first quarter, then there's not going to be that much to talk. (laughs) 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 No, I'm kidding. Um, but no, I I think that's my first comment is is uh I basically Jake when you texted me like when you had first started the game and you were like hey man this this takes a long time to get going I remember just I was like okay I'm just gonna suck myself up and I just like speed ran yeah like the the whole 
training montage i mean it's not spoilers the whole beginning is like a training montage right that takes yeah, like, like a couple about hours. an hour at least i feel like yeah so you can definitely speed run through that then once you get past that things start to pick up and like get a bit more interesting but definitely takes too long to get going yeah you you go like legitimately an hour before you do a combat tutorial and it's and you do combat before that you do a tutorial which is weird yeah uh, but it's um it does take a long time to get going and uh it's it's kind of a bummer because i i like i thought it's interesting with like the the solstice warrior setup and like these kind of children of destiny and stuff like that mm-hmm. i thought that was interesting but like you spend too much time in the school waiting for something to happen at the beginning and um, like i'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about narrative as we go but um it's unfortunate that this is the first category to come up because i'm pretty down on this game's narrative i I don't think it's very good but um so this opening where like you're just waiting and waiting you're like when when are we gonna do this it's it was a bad omen i think yeah i mean yeah i I, I mean, this game I have been waiting for for years because I love The Messenger. When I have to come yeah, up with the top too. 10, you know, favorite games of all time, I usually The Messenger is on that list for me. And, I, and so I had actually like made time to do a very rare pre-order bonus podcast stream. And I hadn't played any of the demo. I hadn't been spoiled at all. I think I came into a day of or day after it launched. And I'm up on stream. And one of the hardest games to stream, especially if you're like us and we don't stream regularly and that's not who we are and you have a smaller crowd, is when it's reading a lot of text. Mm-hmm. It's a death sentence if you're trying to stream. And so, <laughs> I, and so I was thinking, I'm glad that there are people in here and that they're sticking around because there's not a whole lot to watch right now. And it, it's, it is, you know, it kind of starts, you know, Dave, you alluded to this, right, where you start with Valer and Zale, and they are solstice warriors. They're sort of children of destiny. They're brought to this village, and they are supposed to be trained in magical arts pertaining to either the sun or the moon. And you're like, okay, this it's not necessarily doesn't feel new, <laughs> you know, uh, what they're trying to set up here. And you kind of get a sense of okay, these are the these who this is who these characters are, um, but then you just kind of hit a bunch of exposition, and it's a shame um, because I think without spoiling, in the long run, a lot of this exposition is superfluous, and and I think that's why the first hour or so of the game is so hard for me because in the moment you're like maybe this stuff will be necessary maybe there's a reason why they're spending so much time doing this and maybe that was just me being optimistic cuz I was so excited for this game but after i have you know reached credits yeah a lot of that just seemed pretty pretty unnecessary yeah i think it starts with like it it starts off at that very beginning cut scene where it's like we're going to tell you a story and you're like oh this is like kind of intriguing and then it gets and then immediately as you said jake falls into i don't know sort of like your standard you know like super nintendo era like final fantasy tropes not like in in certain in in a bad way like not a good way and like not an interesting way so totally agree like it just i think a lot of interesting things that happen later on 
I feel like they just needed to just massively up the pacing of, of when those things happen just to like get weird earlier. I think that's like the opportunity you have in a game like this one that harkens back, you know, to this very much like a harkens back to like Chrono Trigger, right? And inspired by those, those kind of early Final Fantasy games. Just do the weird stuff earlier because we're the people who are going to play this game who are like, you've been looking forward to it for so long. They kind of know the deal, right? So it's, yeah, I think, I think they had the opportunity to do that and they didn't quite do it. Dave, I'll ask you talking about, um, what, I mean, I know you said that you're like relatively down on this narrative. Tell me about the positives for you. What stands out as like good things that you liked about this story before we get into the negatives? Um, this is a harder question than it should be. Uh, I think, <laughs> and the answer can be, I don't have any, if that's, no, it's not, it's not, I mean, it's not trash across the board. Like I'm not going to come out yeah, yeah, and yeah. say that, but it's, it's tough to think of positives. Like, so positives is that like, they do have some themes that I think are interesting that they, they tried to explore. And like, when we get into the negatives, I, I will kind of go back into this subject, but I think that like one of the themes they set up is, okay, you have these children of destiny, these solstice warriors. Uh, how do they feel about this whole thing? Mm-hmm. And um, they do explore that a little bit. I thought that's interesting. Uh, your buddy, Garl, that joins the two solstice warriors. Um, I think it's an interesting dynamic because you have these two basically God children, uh, Valir and Zale, and then Garl's just a regular guy. And that is like, brings up interesting points of conflict throughout mm-hmm. the story yeah. uh, where Garl should not be on this adventure. Traveling in JRPG parties is uh, a dangerous and ridiculous thing to put yourself through. And they do kind of explore that through Garl, the normal person, you know? Mm-hmm. So I would say those are positives. Mm-hmm. Um, I do really like that comment. Um, Garl, the second he starts talking, I thought this this is a guy with a dog disposition. Like this is a golden retriever, <laughs> you know. And like like golden retrievers, they're very easy to love, right? And I think this is important um, in terms of out of all the different characters, how they all grow and develop in their different characterization like arcs. Garl's is definitely probably the highlight. I would say it's easy to to love him. And it's easy to follow his his sort of story. And then Dave, I think what you brought out this is this is what I think Sea of Stars does very interestingly, right? And so this it really takes uh, to task the theme of prophecy. Who is prophecy for? What is prophecy supposed to mean? And how does knowing a prophecy dictate how one acts? You know, and and what actions that they will take. And uh, you said it really well. I mean, this is, I think, most manifest in, in Garl, who is not supposed to receive a prophecy. He's not supposed to be with the Solstice Warriors. And there are moments, you know, early on in the game, Garl is told, there will be moments where you will have to step aside. And yeah. Garl has a Golden Retriever personality. So he says, I would love to step aside. Nothing would make me happier than to step aside during those moments. And what I found to be really cool, this happens in the first fourth of the game, right? In one of the first major bosses, um, Garl is asked to step aside and it pulled at my heartstrings a little bit. I was like, really? Because I depended on Garl quite a lot. And within that first fight, Garl becomes quite indispensable to to achieving victory. Um, and that's all I'm going to say there. But um, 
I, I just thought it was really nice how the game and the world building, the logic of the magic and how who should be wielding it, um, that logic is immediately questioned throughout the game. And it makes for the most interesting, I think, narrative moments. Dave, let's get right in. Let's circle back now. Let's talk about the negatives. What fell off for you on this one? Um, the this the most striking thing and the like almost strikes one and two against the game's narrative for me are that your main characters, Valir and Zale, uh, are, in my opinion, cardboard cutout characters who have no personality or desires of their own. Right. They're they're basically just they're like silent protagonists, but they're not silent protagonists, which is a, not a good thing, I, I think. So, mm-hmm. like, I say they set up this theme of, like, these children of destiny, um, the Solstice Warriors, and how they feel about that. But you don't experience that through Zale and Valir because they're just kind of going through the, the steps of the story. And there's a there's a bunch of situations where, like, Maybe you need to talk to someone important. Garl is the one who does the talking and then Zale and Valir just kind of like, they just kind of nod along with the conversation or Mm -hmm. they get a text box that says, ha 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 or something like that. So like part of the reason that I could not connect with this story as opposed to other RPGs like this, where I'm like all in on the story is that the main characters, the ones who get most of the dialogue and the ones that I'm supposed to care the most about, they, they're just nothing. And I actually don't even think Garl is that great. He's just the only one who has a character arc and a character story. So by comparison, he's great. Um, like Garl is good. And I, like, I'm praising that part of the story because Mm -hmm. it's the only thing that I think they really followed through on. Whereas Zale and Valir, they set this up, they do some interesting things that I won't spoil with it, and then it's just gone and it's never really brought up again and they mm-hmm. never grapple with these things the way I feel like they should. Yeah, they they are really, really tough protagonists and I want to reiterate this point. It's not the problem of having one protagonist that's split into two and so the personality spread too thin across two different characters. Is that they are right. two different characters, but there's not a whole lot from either of them. And it, it becomes, and I think this is part of the problem, right? When you have suddenly two characters that are essentially functioning as a single mouthpiece, like a silent protagonist, but they're not silent, like you said, um, it's to quote Bilbo Baggins. I mean, it's a you know, paraphrase. It's a whole lot of butter and it's two <laughs> slices of bread, you know, or it's not enough butter. Sorry, not enough butter, but you got two slices of bread that you're trying to get the same tiny amount of butter across. And it, it it's it's such a shame they have their moments that are interesting. Um, they, uh, throughout the course of their journey, they are going to uh, come up against people that they have known and they're going to have differing opinions. Um, and there are moments, I would say, for some really interesting characterization, uh, but they they themselves simply do not do a whole lot, which, which I think is a shame. And I'm not going to mention these party members because they show up later because there are party members that show up that very, very intimately, I feel like, are connected with the world building of the game. And it's such a shame that you have these two children, uh, of you know, the, the two solstice warriors who are supposed to be this massive part of this magic system in the game. And 
they just kind of don't fulfill that role as somebody who's interesting to follow. Yeah. Um, another thing that I, I just want to bring up because this, this was another big sticking point with me. So, uh, Cameron, you mentioned the Chrono Trigger inspiration. Have you guys played Chrono Trigger? No, it's been forever, but yes, briefly. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I, I obviously won't spoil what happens in Chrono Trigger, but like, I think that some of these retro throwback games do a really good job of walking the line between being inspired by the games that inspired it. You know, Jake, you and I did that Patreon episode about Chained Echoes. Yeah. And I, I thought that game did a really, really good job of like yes. being very clearly inspired by Final Fantasy VI and Suikoden and games like that. But Chained Echoes is its own thing. 100%. Oh, yeah. It's its own story. It's its own game. It's got its own things to do. I did not feel the same way about Sea of Stars. They wholesale lifted several things from Chrono Trigger and just put the Sea of Stars characters in that situation, in those exact plot beats. It was like, it crossed the line to me of like, I get I get it, you you love Chrono Trigger, but like, you have to have your own ideas. Mm-hmm. You have to. I And I, I lost some respect for the storytelling there too. Yeah, that that's painful. And listen... I made a promise to myself that I wouldn't turn this episode into Sea of Stars versus Chained Echoes. Um, right. It's so, so, it's so it's hard tough. not to it's compare so those two. It's very hard Chained not Echoes to. Chained Echoes was so good. Chained Echoes, I mean, talk about a way to start a game, right? I mean, yeah, right gosh, off the bat. Yeah. But, but <laughs> I'm leaving that aside, and I put that out there to our listeners just so you know that we are all trying really hard not to talk about Chained Episodes. This is an episode on Sea of Stars. Um, right. But... Narratively, I would say that, like, there are, this game is sort of uneven. There are, there were moments, there were stretches when I was invested. And it, it really came down to when I met really cool bosses. And the bosses were mm. sort of explained, and you understood why they were a boss and why the Solstice Warriors would be pitted against them. Um, and that, to me, those were probably the, the cool, like, you know, blood pumping moments of the game narratively where I think, okay, sweet. This is who we're up against. And this is what, you know, they have done. And this is why they need to be removed or taken out or whatever it is. And so I definitely got excited in, in a lot of the boss moments. Um, and I mean this narratively as well, right? I think some of them were, were super cool. And, um, some of the bosses you come back to, um, just really phenomenal. I, I just loved the way that they were presented narratively into the story. Is like, this is why this person's an enemy. Um, and this is why you need to be up against them. So that stuff I really enjoyed. Um, sort of towards the end of what I personally consider the first act. Um, and getting back to sort of the nuts and bolts of the story. Because we're talking about the game really vaguely, right? So as uh, Valir and Zale, they're the Solstice Warriors. And Garl accompanies them. He's titled the Warrior Cook. Which I saw a lot of Twitter handles change to so-and-so the Warrior Cook. As they were playing this. <laughs> um they sort of go out in this adventure and they receive this first task, which is to take down a dweller. And this is an, I have a, a quote up here because I couldn't think of a good description. This is just from the Wikipedia. Otherworldly monsters created by a godlike alchemist called the Fleshmancer. And so they are up to take down the first one. Um, and while they are waiting, because they are considered not to be powerful enough to take them down alone, a bunch of their mentors show up to sort of assist them in their first battle against a dweller. And that, to me, like, was the first really cool narrative moment. 
we get a better explanation of what a dweller is, why a dweller needs to be taken down, and how you are going to team up with your mentors. Um, Moraine, who's sort of the headmaster of the school, and then Erlina and Brugaves. I Man, I did not look at the, the pronunciation guide before looking at this. Um, but That's how I've been saying it. That's how you've been saying it, yeah. But mm-hmm. So you, you talk with these mentors, and you have pretty interesting conversations with them sort of talking about these main themes of prophecy that we've mentioned that I brought up. And that boss fight to me was like, all right, we've hit it. We've hit the moment in in the JRPG where the quest is no longer find the lost kitty, but it's, you know, let's let's do some serious battles. And that was mm-hmm. one of the highlights for me. And that's, I wanted to point that out as an example of this is a boss fight where suddenly narratively things came together. You had a good reason and you as a player felt compelled to go into this boss fight and remove this dweller and take him out. Let's anything else to say on narrative. I mean, we could probably keep going forever on narrative. Any other comments on narrative before we talk about mechanics? Uh, Just a, a general, like another thing that bugged me, they, there are two endings for this game and they hide the real ending behind a bunch of completionist uh, nonsense. And I, I can't stand that. I, I was very, uh, <laughs> very annoyed by that. Cameron and I recently had this conversation on this narrative episode. Annoying. That's the end part. <laughs> yeah. Cameron, I know you have strong feelings on that, on hiding true endings behind the first ending. That oh, you yeah. Get. I love I love that mechanic. That's that's such a great. I, I just love that. No, I hate that a lot. It, it's uh, it's a <clears throat> it's a shame in Sea of Stars, especially because there's a lot of games where I would be like, Okay, I'm satisfied with my ending. I'll just go watch the end, the other endings on YouTube, and I'll be done with it. But I was not satisfied by the regular ending of Sea of Stars. I, I felt like it's kind of a fake out ending, and the real ending that you have to do all the extra stuff for is very clearly the one they want you to see, in my opinion. And so that's why it bugged me so much. Mm. Yeah. So I just made it through the first credits. I didn't do any of the completion stuff afterwards. And mm. um, I was really surprised. I was really surprised it ended the way that it did. Um, some of it, I think, was there was there's like on the on the surface, really cool shiny stuff, but not all that glitters is gold. Um, and mm-hmm. then having looked up the the true ending, I was like, oh my gosh, really? Like I actually got something that wasn't this. Yeah, um, that's what they hid from you behind collecting all the seashells, dude. Oh, my gosh. And there's like, what, 70 seashells or something? Yeah, 60. 60. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. What a pain. That 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 was a little painful to go back and watch that ending. Well, with that, let's move into mechanics. Um, yeah, let's dig right in. I think a couple things stand out. Combat and puzzles. Um turn-based combat i am a huge turn-based combat fan love turn-based combat i had a generally good time in this game i I thought it was pretty well done a couple things that i really liked were um i like how you immediately just get put into combat there's not a lot of fluff around that i know some of like the inspired sort of jrpgs like there's long load times (laughs) to like get into stuff right and this, you know, you just walk up to the guy and it, like, starts immediately. Uh, and then a couple other, like, quirks they throw in. Obviously, like, you sort of have your basic, like, menu system where you select your attack and then you select who you're going to attack. But a couple spins they throw in is that 
Um, and some of these may be old. Some of them may be new. I, Dave, you'll have to correct me if like Chrono Trigger has some of this, but um, a couple of the things that I like. So what they'll do on some of the enemies is they'll throw up like an icon that will show like what kind of attack the enemy is susceptible to on any given turn. And so if you hit with that attack, you'll be able to like stun the enemy or, you know, block their attack or like blunt damage or, you know, different kind of conditions like that. And then also on any turn, you can switch to any character, which Mm -hmm. I also thought was fun and added like variety to how you could approach different situations. And then the other thing and again, this is kind of just what takes it beyond sort of your basic turn-based a little bit, was that they have these sort of um, active mechanics with the fireball and with with the moon attack, where when you shoot it out, the moon attack, for example, you shoot it out, and then you can continue to smash the button, and then it'll do more damage, excuse me, as you keep bouncing it back and forth and you have to mm-hmm. like time your button presses. So it'll keep hitting them. And then the fireball, if you release it at the right time, it'll be like the biggest fireball and it'll do more damage. And I just thought those are fun ways to kind of like riz up, so to speak, like the turn-based combat, which I generally thought was good and provided like some good light strategic depth. It's nothing crazy, uh, but it was enough where I was like, oh, this is, this feels pretty good. Yeah, that um, those timing attacks are like a pretty direct takeaway from the Mario and Luigi RPGs. Yeah. That's uh, which is where like, that's from. You just yeah, yes. the other like the other half of the inspiration behind this game is is that whole series on uh, like Paper Mario and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Um, right. Yes. That that stuff is fun, and um, the I I agree. I had a good time with the combat. It took me a little while to get into it um, because. I don't know if you guys felt this way. It might just be me, but like, so they, they throw up those uh, interruptible attacks with all those icons yes. for different damage types. Yeah. Uh, and if you get them all, you can completely interrupt their attack. And you want to, because those are the most powerful attacks that are coming. So those kind of, to me, read as puzzles. Um, mm-hmm. You have to puzzle right. out how to, in however many turns before that enemy attacks, because they'll show you that, um, how do I interrupt this attack? So maybe there's like a hammer icon, a sun icon, and a sword icon. Well, it's like well, Valir can do the hammer damage. Zale can do the uh, sword and the fire damage. But maybe like you have to puzzle out like, okay, do I have enough magic to do this other attack? Or what order do I have to do these in to set mm-hmm. this up? So it's a puzzle. But like they're not all solvable. Like there are lots of them that you can't break them all. And that felt bad at the beginning of the game before I realized like, well, number one, before I realized this is an RPG, you can't just never take damage. That's not how these games work. (laughs) But the other, as you go, you get more abilities and you get more characters. Um, You get a character at some point that has an ability to delay enemy attacks. And that quickly became like the best ability in the entire game. Um, so what this resulted in is, uh, something I don't say about a lot of these RPGs, especially the older ones. And that's the boss fights were excellent. Like my favorite part of the gameplay was boss fights. And that's a welcome surprise. I don't often get to say that about these types of games. Uh, boss fights usually just feel like big meat walls with, uh, you know, one hit kill moves that you have to go grind up a bunch before you fight them and stuff like that. Not the case in this game. I, I this was awesome. Mm-hmm. So like, 
after I got over that initial difficulty with the, like just getting to terms with what this combat system is, I had a great time. And so Mm -hmm. like as much as I, you know, took the story to task, like the gameplay was really good, really, really good. Yeah, I'm totally with you there. The boss fights were the hallmark of this game by far. And absolutely with combat, because with combat, you could you could really let things go. You could build up things over the course of time. Really cool combos, you know, um, and specials using ults and and doing a lot of really fantastic, fantastic things. Um, They're just chaining and using all of the tools at your disposal. That was probably my Mm -hmm. favorite thing about the combat as well. This is kind of coming back to something Cameron said. If you have more than three party members, it's only three are fighting at once. You can kind of switch them out at will, and um, it doesn't like cost anything. You don't like lose a turn or you don't lose mana or anything. You just kind of do that stuff freely, and so I felt like that was the best maybe counter you had to an unsolvable like a, a puzzle, you know, or to attack in order to block it. Where it's like, you know what, I can't do this, but if I switch out my party member, I can at least reduce that attack from 100% to 68%, you know, yeah. by knocking out five out of seven of the icons, you know, if it was a super complex one or whatever it is. So I really, really love that part of the turn-based combat. There was also a mechanic at the beginning. I did not understand why it was in place, and it's this using magic without magic, which I felt like this was a super oh, weird, yes. like very side like very like side what what am i thinking of like like almost in a side afterthought way of explaining a new combat mechanic but essentially what you can do is you can hit enemies with non-magic attacks and it creates like these little white crystals that come out of the enemies and then you can absorb those to turn non-magic attacks into attacks that would do magic damage or they would just power up attacks that you were using and at first, I thought this mechanic was a total waste. I was like, why is this being thrown on top of everything else we have? We have timing to do extra damage, timing to block. You know, I have to figure out which icons I'm able to take out to interrupt what attacks. Why is this in there? And that very quickly, I found, became really important when I was trying to interrupt attacks. To be like, you know what? This is what I have available right now with, like, my mana points. Or I could just do this attack and absorb one of the some of the crystals that are on the ground and get magic attacks going this way. So it became a really, really valuable resource to have. And I entered most boss fights especially, but most you know extended fights, just building up as many of those as I could. So I had, you can have up to three and they stack just at any given point. And so I would just hold on to them and be like, okay, when some sort of interruptible attack comes up, maybe if I can't solve it, maybe... I can either reduce damage or maybe I'll get lucky enough to solve it because I have this stuff in reserve. So I just love that there are a lot of tools that you could pull from in all these combat um, encounters and that bosses really got to shine because they were extended fights. You could really go ham uh, trying to figure out. And I was, I was planning, I was playing 3d chess. I was planning turns like five turns in advance being like, Oh, Mm -hmm. if I do this, then I'll be able to build up this much combo or I'll have this ult ready for this character and I'll be able to do this which I rarely do in these types of game. Well, most most of these don't make you do that. They don't make you <laughs> consider your entire tool set or they'll give you a big tool set, but most of them don't work against bosses. Like that's a right. 
that's a very Final Fantasy problem where they'll be like, here's all these amazing status effects you have, but you can't ever oh use them goodness. against bosses. They, they don't yes. work. Right. So like this game makes you use and master <laughs> everything available to you. And they struck, in my opinion, like a perfect balance as far as challenge goes. Mm-hmm. Like I got party wiped a couple of times, um, but it was mostly against regular enemies. Like they would... I'd be like fighting four of them and they'd all throw up these big complex uh, lock puzzles. And I'm like, I can't do anything about this. I'm, I guess I'll die. Uh, But (laughs) the boss fights and those were few and far between enough that like they're noteworthy, but they're not a deal breaker by any means. Mm -hmm. But I felt like the boss fights were like perfect um, challenge points at those certain stops along the story, including the final boss. The real final boss? And any of the final bosses, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I love that you mentioned the Final Fantasy problem, because I've been thinking about that a lot lately, especially pulling Baldur's Gate, how just, like, the abilities actually work on a boss, which is, like, (laughs) it's sort of, like, mind-blowing, like, when it, it's like, oh my gosh, I can actually use all of my stuff on this boss, and I can, like, actually push the mechanics to their fullest level even on a boss it's not just a meat shield that i just have to do damage on like it's a puzzle that's meant to be solved Mm -hmm. um and when you find the puzzle piece that fits suddenly like the fight a fight can become trivial i think this game does that i mean not as good as Baldur's day three i mean but (laughs) it does it as it does it pretty well um yeah well enough that yeah i totally agreed combat they, they do a lot of fun, interesting things with it. Yeah, they do. I, I do enjoy... I mean, the combat in here was a lot of fun. I do want to come back to a few things, maybe say some some negative things, some criticism here. Um, like what Dave was saying, sometimes you'd be like... It was, it was obviously like... I don't know if you'd call it a skill check, but maybe a health check. You were far enough away from a campfire into a certain part of like a level or an area, and then suddenly it'd be like four enemies, and two of these enemies can summon other enemies... And you're kind of low on healing and you really got to like put everything to the test. And I was not a huge fan of those mainly because it was like, oh, crap. Wait, if I just if I get bad RNG right now and all these enemies use a specific attack, what am I really going to be able to do? Especially if I'm in here and I've already like sort of been through a gauntlet of enemies. I mean, like you said, those moments were kind of rare. But I was I was not a big fan of those sort of feeling like I was trapped from the from the get go with some of these. Now you mm-hmm. can try your best to avoid enemies, and there were a few times that I was able to successfully run past enemies. They'd be chasing me, and then I like get to like a ladder where they couldn't reach me, and I was able to avoid fights. But I feel like I was in most fights of this game, um, and. Maybe you guys have other things to say about that, but I kind of want to move on to one thing that I didn't quite fully grasp even by the end of the game. And that was when you level up, which is not super common in this game, (laughs) you can choose, I mean, all of your stats get raised and then you can choose which stat you wanted to raise some more. And it was really hard for me to build craft in this game. Um, Some things were obvious, like Garl is a tank. And so I mostly just like built up his health when I could. But with the, the, the white crystal mechanic where you can turn like non-magic attacks into magic attacks, I found myself wondering, okay, what stat does this scale off of? Do I really, like for Valir and Zael, do I really need to be investing in one 
that's more physical attack over magic attack, or they just need to be well-rounded. Like, the build crafting here, I, I didn't get, which I feel like in most RPGs, you have a general sense of who needs to be doing what on a team. Um, but I, I never really figured that out here. Yeah, I, I kind of appreciate how everyone plays their role in this combat, and it's it's not really a game about making builds. It's just, I, I think that those bonus stats when you level up are just bonuses. Um, but the thing that I prioritized was getting more magic points because they're so limited. Oh, yeah. And like, if I prioritize those whenever they're available, by the end of the game, I can do one more magic attack uh, without, you know, replenishing it. So that's what I prioritized there. Okay. It's it's interesting. Um, one one kind of weird thing that happened in my brain through this game is like, like you said, you don't level up very much. Uh, they have you on a really tight leash as far as your level goes. Like you you can't grind. It, it would take the <laughs> sickest of the sickos to grind in this game. Even <laughs> even my my good friend Aaron, one of my uh, podcast co hosts. Um, he is a grinding maniac and even he was like, no, not in this game. You just can't. So they have you on such a tight leash, but what it results in is like you level up so infrequently, like you, you'll beat a boss and you'll get like one fifth of a level up. And that just feels bad to me. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I, I appreciate keeping it all on the track so I don't have to grind, but like, I go through like a really tough boss fight and it's like, here's 15% of a level up. And I'm like, Oh, can't, can't you just give me a level here? I can just beat this boss. <laughs> um, yeah. The, the other like small criticism about like gameplay stuff um, is, and this is a criticism of the developer and their tutorializing and not like the mechanic it's associated with. Okay. At the very beginning of the game, they tell you, that timing attacks and timing blocks is optional and to think of it as a bonus. And that is a bold-faced lie. <laughs> it is not optional. You have to do it. Uh, you can, like, equip the relics that do it for you, but you have to do it. Like, you'll get wrecked against boss fights if you don't do this stuff. And at the beginning, they're like, yeah, if you miss it, don't worry about it. It's all good. Like, think of it as a nice little treat when you get it right. And that is just not true. Yeah, and the relics don't mitigate that enough. Like, the ones that are supposed to, mm. right? It's like 50% of the time, your block will reduce damage by 30% or something, to the point where it's, mm. like, not really enough. Now, I, I personally wouldn't have an issue with this, except this is the rarest criticism I'll ever make of a video game. I think there was too much attention to detail and too much variety when it came to combat like enemy attacks coming at you because it was extremely difficult to memorize the timing of when you were supposed to block enemy attacks because yeah. the animations were so varied and because there was enough enemy variation as well that i mean the first time you kind of just have to take the hit so you can try to figure it out but with this game has an absolutely massive variety of enemy attacks coming at you. And if you factor in all the different boss attacks that you're supposed to block as well, it's like impossible. I do not have the brain capacity to memorize that much in a game. And so I just knew sometimes I was like, you know what? I'm just going to have to take a lot of hits right here. And I'm going to have to kind of go ease off on the offense and up my defense so I can survive until a point where I'm figuring out block timing 
or um, I just know that I have enough combo to build up to do something else. And so yeah, I think it really, not only is it necessary, but um, it was just so much. It was too much to really get a handle yeah. on. It's a, it's a real double-edged sword, having that many uh, different animations for mm-hmm. all these different enemies and all their different attacks. Yeah. Is it cool? Oh, you bet. You bet it's cool. And this is the kind of stuff that I typically would ask for. I'm like, oh, yeah, sure. Like, give all the enemies the different animation types. Take seven more years in development. I don't really care. But, like, <laughs> but like for this specific case with this specific mechanic, it, it, it quickly became overwhelming. I had to pull up the game because I forgot the name of the ability. I'm looking at it right now, though. But Valir has an ability, a skill called Lunar Shield, which is essentially, yep. um, you know, a free hit or, like, free free block, I should say. And I was using that a lot in order to be able to figure out timing. Let's move on to talking about the gameplay loop. Um, Dave, we'll start with you. What's your breakdown of kind of the flow of the game? How do you feel like Sea of Stars does is it succeed in kind of what it's trying to do for its loop and how it uh, sets that up for the player? Yeah, so like the, the general loop that you're doing is explore combat explore puzzle explore and then a boss fight at the end Mm -hmm. and we when we talk about gameplay we really focused on combat and i think the exploring and puzzle aspect of this game is like simple it's not they didn't go crazy with puzzles Um, but what they did put in there i think was pretty good pretty satisfying and like I'm playing an RPG, like I want to make progress through the story. I want to keep leveling up my characters. I don't want to be stumped on a puzzle for an hour <coughs> in a game like this. And I think they did well with that. The uh, little exploration things that you do, like hopping ledges and walking tight ropes and uh, doing the hook shot and stuff like that, all of that was like, it makes my lizard brain happy. So yeah, I'm pretty happy with the way they set up the gameplay loop and like, the pacing of these levels they all mm-hmm. felt they all felt good they all felt digestible like you know if you got 20 minutes to play you can make progress it's it's a good game for that kind of stuff i think mm-hmm. yeah i totally agree this game the exploration or just like the traversal as you're climbing and walking on ledges and stuff this game is the biggest flex i think when it comes to animations in this art style um, even mm. even just like swimming in the water, like I saw a lot of different developer threads on Twitter, people just saying like, okay, how exactly was this done? And somebody even saying like, this entire game must have been made in 3D with 3D models. Um, and then they just fake it to make it all look 2D. And so I, I love when other developers start seeing like, or start questioning the technical aspects of a game. And I just felt <laughs> like um, all all sorts of stuff in this game was just a huge flex on just the skill of the developers to make things look really cool as you're just moving around in the world. Um, I agree with you, Dave. I'm glad that the puzzles here weren't super crazy. Um, a lot of the different like levels or areas that you traverse, you have a campfire and that's where you want to rest and that's where your save point is. And there is a save point. Like you have to go to a book and save manually. So there are some auto save moments, but it's best to think of this game as a, a manual save only type of game. And a lot of times you'll be, maybe you're coming back to that same campfire um, if you're in an area right before boss as you're sort of doing the puzzle and finding where the switches are and flipping them. And yeah, it's it's pretty, I feel like when it comes to gameplay loop, it's relatively stress-free. You don't have to worry too much about where you're going or how to solve things or how to make progress. 
which I think mm-hmm. in a game like this where the where the combat really shines, yeah, let the combat do more the 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 heavy lifting here when it comes to what the player is doing in the game. Um, I did do some optional content where the puzzles were a little trickier and you had to think a little more about how you were you know getting through a specific area. And I'm glad that, that it was optional. Like I, it was because I wanted a little more of a challenge. I wanted a better reward, and so the game demanded a little more of me. Awesome. I think that's awesome pacing and awesome level design. Any other thoughts on gameplay loop? Uh, Pretty self-explanatory, pretty linear on this one. It's pretty linear. I guess like I enjoyed the cooking. Cooking mini games are like super common in games these days. But uh, I enjoyed the cooking as like as you're running through the levels, just whenever you see some food, run over and grab it. And then cooking to make your own healing items in combat is uh, is cool. I liked it. And the the portraits that they put up, like the little slideshow oh, as you're yeah. cooking, love those. Dude, I love good pixel art food. I don't I don't know why. Eastward probably takes the cake <laughs> for that for me. Yeah, but yes. I loved it here. Um, the one thing to sort of break up this gameplay loop that we've discussed here though was wheels. And oh yeah, I spent a lot more time than I ever do in most games playing wheels. Wheels is like this, you know, mini game invented and you can go to different champions tables scattered throughout uh, the world that you're in and you can play wheels. I don't even know how to describe it. It's like, it almost feels like dice rolling and where it's not dice, but you sort of like roll for specific icons that can make you do specific uh, abilities or have different actions as you're competing against another opponent and you can re-roll them to a certain degree (coughs) um but yeah wheels was the one thing that i think that broke up that gameplay loop where it's like if i if i didn't have enough time maybe to go um into a boss fight maybe i would play some wheels and sit down and just play some wheels and try to earn some prizes that way did you did you any guys play wheels very much i played way more than i thought i would i didn't I did. I, I played. I played at every table that I found. Um, there were a couple times where they were like, "Oh, I'd love to play, but you need to go to this place and get this item or talk to this person, and then we can play." And I was like, "Eh, I don't <laughs> think so." But I, I did play all the tables that I found. I thought it was fun. Um, struck me as a game that like it, it's not very balanced. Like it, this, it wouldn't <laughs> be a game you could play against another person. It would be ridiculous to try and play against mm-hmm. another person. But for for what it is, you know, take a, a little 10 minutes and just play some wheels. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I liked it. I, I did the same thing, too. I think I found every table except two. And then when I looked them up, I was like, yeah, that's a lot of work to unlock that table. Yeah. <laughs> um, as much as I wanted to, there's an achievement if you beat every single champion in the game. There is an achievement that you can, there's a trophy that you get for that. And I was really tempted to get the wheels related one, but... Um, there was one specific table that I decided was going to, it was a straw that broke the camel's back. Let's move to our last category, talking about impact on the industry. Um, I can kick us off on this one. So I actually listened to recently an interview with the man. I don't even know what his title is, but he's like head creative at, sabotage that makes okay um 
Sea of Stars from the let me just the Friends per Second podcast, which has mm-hmm. like um oh my gosh, what's the it's the one with uh with skill up and the uh the yes. completionist in them. Yeah. Skill up completionists, um, and then has the the girl from uh GameSpot from Giant Bomb. I'm forgetting everyone's name. It's too late. It's eight twenty. I can't think <laughs> after work. Uh <laughs> anyway, they talked to him and were saying how he was saying how they didn't think it could be done, but they got Sea of Stars on PS Plus and Game Pass at the same time. Yeah, how did that happen? Yeah, so they interviewed and they talked to him about it, and it was basically this thing was like, yeah, like you can't really do this, and he was like, well, why not? And so he basically asked, and they were like, sure. Uh, <laughs> so it was one of those situations where like when he asked around, it was like, nah, you can't do that, like you can't do that, and he was just like, well, why not? And uh, and he ended up doing it. So I think. Um, anyway, it's a really great interview and he talks about sort of how he was able to, you know, get, get the money to, to kind of do sea of stars and like do a brand new vision. As you mentioned, Jake, that was like totally, totally wildly different from the messenger and kind of how all that came to pass, I think brings me back around to just this conversation, Jake, that we have a lot on what is the future of games like sea of stars look like? Um, I do, I still hold fast to this ideal or belief that it's a, it's, it's a little different than the streaming situation. We see like the movie streaming situation where what's happening now is we've exited the era of growth at all costs where you're going to have, you know, 14 different streaming services. They're all going to be like six bucks a month. And now, as everyone can see, they're all double, doubling, tripling the prices, right? It's all, it's profitability at all costs because they've, they've exited this era of growth. And a lot of these like big media companies have realized like the streaming model is like unsustainable. And so how do they maintain it? And so Disney being the big one, it's like Disney plus is it is by all accounts, a, a total disaster, like it's just costing them tons of money. And so it does raise that question of looking at stuff like game pass and PS plus. And it's like, are those especially game pass being the big one? Xbox is all in on game pass, like as their model, I do think it's a little different. And I think one of the reasons it is, is because it brings games like sea of stars, which would normally just go out on steam or on the Microsoft store, probably to die, to be honest, just because of how, I mean, Sea of Stars, pretty decently large marketing. I feel like I saw a lot of marketing around this, but your average person is not going to see Sea of Stars pretty much at all. However, when it's a like featured release on Game Pass, suddenly it just gives it a visibility. And then especially if it's all, it's on both, right? PS Plus and Game Pass. It gives it a, vil- a visibility that I don't think games like this would have had before unless you're just the ultimate breakout hit on steam. And even then you're sort of confined to that PC audience, right? Unless you're like a star, a stardew Valley. Anyways, is this, is this, is this how this is going to go into the future? What's going to be the impact of, of kind of this model and, and what's happened with CS stars here? I mean, just to jump in, I think sabotage is in a really interesting scenario or spot here, right? Where they have this, they they did have a breakout hit. They had the Messenger, right? The Messenger was their debut, as far as I know, and it was a big hit. It was a game that was eventually added to Game Pass, so you know that they got some Game Pass money as well. Um, and 
So when they're creating Sea of Stars, they started with a Kickstarter, right? With uh, They have a fan base already, and they say, hey, Sea of Stars takes place in the same universe as the Messenger. Please back this game. It's going to be totally different. It's not the Messenger 2, but, you know, there's some things there. And so I'm just thinking about, like, the way that they're getting funding, right? They're getting funding through Kickstarter. They set up a Game Pass deal, and then they managed to land a PS Plus deal as well. And so they're getting that type of cash. And what that says to me is that, this is a studio that when it came to their sophomore release, they wanted to make sure that they were going to have enough money to make a third game. And so they went making all the deals that they could while retaining as much control over their game as they did. As far as I know, this is self-published. That's why I say that. It is self-published. Um, and so I think they're in a really unique position when it comes to finances to be able to make decisions that they want to make. And... I mean, of course, I wish upon every single indie studio this type of uh, you know freedom and and cash flow that they have. And they said um, that they sold, let's see, they sold over a quarter of a million copies in its first week, and so it it secured the cash. And I just feel like indie devs, um, obviously, not every single indie dev is in the same position as Sabotage Studio. But it it seems to me that they have established a model here that makes it viable for them to continue making games. And that's the type of optimism that I want for all indie studios. Um, so, so they can avoid the sort of streaming problem. They can avoid the problem of some of these AAA games and studios that bank so much on one title, even if it's a recurring title, right? So that's that's like my initial thought is like, may every single indie studio have the financial security that it seems that Sabotage Studio has been able to secure. Yeah, my big takeaway from Sea of Stars' success and to a much smaller degree, because I'm rolling these together, uh, Chained Echo's success. Because um, that got a Game Pass deal as well and yeah. um, has, has gotten a lot of acclaim, although you know not nearly as widespread as, as Sea of Stars is. Mm-hmm. But what this tells me, especially with Sea of Stars selling a bunch of copies, like I think they said they sold over a million copies even outside of the Game Pass stuff and PS Plus. Mm -hmm. So what that tells me is that there are people, lots of people, who still want pixel pixel art turn-based RPGs. Mm -hmm. And it's something that the AAA industry has kind of turned their back on like Square Enix is still doing it, but not with their marquee franchises. They moved Final Fantasy away from that. And they're like, okay, well, we'll give you Octopath Traveler. That's what you'll get. Right. Um, and at the other end of great the turn game, base. By the way. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can't wait to play the uh, the sequel. I hear it's great. The um, soundtrack is insane. Sorry. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, the other end of the spectrum, like, is these, like, there's a bunch of indie creators that are making like undertale type RPGs mm, and that it's just yeah. a totally different experience. Those kind of games. So what this shows me is that there are people who want pick like for lack of a better word, like, like I said, pixel pixel art, turn-based RPGs. There are lots of people who will still buy these games despite what square Enix says. They say people don't want them. It's not true. People do want them. Mm-hmm. You just don't want to do it with your marquee franchises. So my hope is that this Octopath Traveler 
um, the Super Mario RPG remake, uh, the Thousand Year Door remaster that Nintendo's doing, um, Chained Echoes again to that lesser extent, Mm -hmm. will give people the courage to make more of these games, maybe with higher budgets, um, because there is there is a market and like so as as much as i you know overall pretty lukewarm on sea of stars as its own game like it's not going to be in my game of the year top list but i am happy that it came out and so many people loved it and so many people bought it like i feel like i'm in a minority for not being totally in love with this game so I'm glad that there are so many other people because that means I'm going to get more games that I like because mm-hmm. I love pixel pixel art turn-based RPGs. I love them so much and it it pains me every time Square Enix is like, nobody wants these games. And I'm like, that's not true. It's not true. <laughs> what are you talking about? Hopefully. Yeah, I mean, people said nobody wanted a turn-based... Nobody wanted like turn-based combat and then Baldur's Gate 3 came out. Exactly. Like, Baldur's Gate 3 came out and smashed the game that they moved away from turn-based combat, smashed their game to pieces as far as like mm-hmm. critical and commercial success. Mm-hmm. So I, I am not going to lie. I got a little bit of like schadenfreude uh, when Baldur's Gate 3 came out with the most <laughs> turn-based combat ever. Like you, oh, you yeah. can't get more turn-based than Baldur's Gate 3. So tactical. If you yeah. want to yeah. get more turn-based, I feel like you just got to pull up your D&D group. Like, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you got to play chess. Your that's, pen, that's your pencil on paper. <laughs> Yeah. No, I think I, to just comment on Dave on that real quick. I think, man, this is just that ongoing conversation of, you know, they've got, they have like too much data. These companies have like way too much data. Right. And they, they're seeing this and it's like, well, 78% of men between <laughs> 25 and 35 said they dislike turn-based combat somebody read that somewhere and then they decided when they made final fantasy 16 like we're moving away from that we're going 100 percent action yeah now and that being like, said final is ever 16 still super successful game but like yeah it, it's one of those just one where it's like there you know there's a market for i don't know there's just a market for good video games i think <laughs> yeah at the end of the day like if if you take what you want to do and you have a vision and you know, you give everything you have to like to that vision. Obviously, it's not always going to work out, but I think that's better than trying to, you know, appease, you know, I don't know, whatever the analytics is saying. Mm-hmm. And, and I think games like this are sort of proving that. And it's buoyed by, I think, Game Pass. And I just, I hope so much that this model is like working for Microsoft, right? Uh, it's clearly working for developers, as has been commented, right? right. They're selling 250,000 units on top of having whatever deal they got from Microsoft for, for Game Pass, right? And so I, I hope that this model is working for them because I think it benefits you know, us as consumers. I get to try a lot of games that normally I probably wouldn't buy at retail. Like I'm probably mm-hmm. not going to buy a Sea of Stars potentially, at least not at release, whereas on Game Pass, I'm playing at day one, right? right? So anyway... Yeah, the the other thing, the last thing I want to say is that the other impact that this has had is it's drumming up interest in the older games that inspired Sea of Stars. Like, I've seen lots of people around who are like, I loved Sea of Stars, so I'm going to go play Chrono Trigger for the first time. Or I'm going to go play, I'm going to buy the Super Mario RPG remake because Sea of Stars is really inspired by those games. So I hope 
that, you know, from an industry perspective, that they realize that some of these companies are sitting on gold with some of these old RPGs. And now I feel like some of that interest is getting drummed up and really like putting these games on your various streaming services. Like, can you imagine if they put uh, Final Fantasy Tactics on like a modern console <laughs> or uh, Chrono Triggers not on a current play? You can't buy it on PS5 or Xbox or Switch. It's only on Steam. Wild. Yep. Um, Wild. So like maybe they'll realize that they're sitting on some money here and release some of these older games because people are finishing Sea of Stars and like, okay, I beat that. I loved it. Well, I heard that it was inspired by these others. So now I want to play those. Yeah. I guess my final thoughts are just the, you know, the video game industry versus like the film industry. Cause this is with the streaming services and what's happening there where, where things, I don't know. I'm just going to kind of make the comparison, I guess. And my my sort of two cents, I feel like when it comes to subscription services like PS Plus and Game Pass, that um, video games have add-ons, right? And that stuff is not covered by Game Pass or PS Plus, right? Where if, um, if I want to buy, if I played a game, I'm trying to think of a good example. If I played some game that was on Game Pass and it has DLC, well, I'm just going to have to go buy the DLC. And then I'm like, oh, well, if the game leaves, then I'll probably just have to buy the game. Oh, but the game is going to be 20% off because it was on Game Pass or something like that, right? Where I think there's like a model built in there for gamers to continue spending money. And this is why I'm not nearly as worried about streaming services or subscription services and video games because you're enticed to continue to buy, right? Whereas um, if, for example, with Netflix, it's about to raise their prices. My wife and I sat down and we we're like, we have like four or five streaming services. Which ones are we cutting? You know, because this is getting out of hand. Which ones am I actually looking at? And there's no incentive. And please, if there's a suit at Netflix listening, tune this out. <laughs> tune this out real quick. But there's no incentive for me to actually buy anything else through Netflix other than the subscription, right? I'm not buying the DVD extra deleted scene packages to some Netflix original so I can watch that through my Netflix account. And frankly, if that was offered as a product, I wouldn't be interested in it. You know, like I, I don't really care. Right. I, I, I don't want to see that. I don't want to. I guess maybe I'm not the target demographic. Maybe there's a demog demographic out there that that's, you know, suit, you know, send your check to me in the mail for that idea. But so that's why I feel like some of the biggest difference is uh, between the the, the two, right? Um, I think with games like Sea of Stars, they get so much more visibility on Game Pass, but I'm just going to come back to this original thought I had. Sabotage, to me, is sort of in this league of indie developers where they have a ton of success under their belt um, that came from uh, a few years ago, and they're just kind of able to build on top of that. And I'm thinking of, um, you know, Celeste you know, Earthblade, which is supposed to come out next year in 2024 from Extremely OK Games. They're in a similar situation, you know, where they've had a ton of success with Celeste. Celeste did its run on Game Pass, you know, and so Extremely OK Games got their chunk of change for that as well, where they're just able to continue and to move forward in that sort of way. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, I, I don't know. I think Sea of Stars, I'm super, I enjoyed it. Um, I probably enjoyed it more than I made it sound like I enjoyed it just on this episode. Um, there's still so much there. You know, they're working on DLC that's supposed to connect Sea of Stars more specifically to the Messenger. I'm like really interested in that because I love the Messenger so much and I really enjoyed the combat of Sea of Stars. 
So I don't know. I don't think I have any more thoughts on impact on the industry, but Cameron, Cameron will start wrapping us up and then I'll interrupt him when something comes to mind. Yes, that is what I will do. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this has been another episode of the period of bonus with our special guest, real Dave Jackson from tales from the backlog. You can check out his podcast on podcast services everywhere. We will drop a link to his show in our podcast description. So go check that out. If you're interested to hear, we have again, as it was already mentioned, a joint breath of the wild episode on his show. So you can go check that out. Um, he's got some amazing episodes, so go follow him. You can find us, uh, on Twitter at Preordercast. You can find Jake at Jacob underscore chip dip 18, me at mass generic. Please join the discord where you come and chat with us. Dave's in there. He's chatting. He's chiming in when we're giving our crazy video game to now. It's actually very tame, but it's a fun, <laughs> it's like, I say this all the time. It's like the fun, safe place to talk about video games and to have nuanced opinions where you can't really do that on Twitter. Right. So, right. It's a chill place. Uh, Highly recommended. <laughs> absolutely. You can also find us on Patreon and quick note on Patreon. We just dropped a Patreon only episode, <laughs> Patreon members only the definitive list of the top 10 most jacked video game characters of all time. You can find that on our Patreon <laughs> Uh, patreon.com slash periodicast link is in the description go join us you can check out that super special episode crazy wild episode but the there's no debate any longer but the definitive the list, list made, yeah we have a definitive, definitive list number mm-hmm. one definitive so if you want to know for sure who are the most ripped gaming characters of all time you're gonna have to go to patreon we thank you so much for listening dave thanks so much for joining us once again everybody yeah. have a great night <laughs>